reading this morning from Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. If you'd like to open your Bibles and follow along with me, and if you would, stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear the Word of the Lord. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. In these days... He went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So Star Wars fans were treated over the last couple years to this fun new character called the Mandalorian. And one thing that really intrigued me when they introduced this character is they were making kind of the anchor of their whole new streaming enterprise uh, a a religious figure. And you think about like the history of Hollywood with religion and religious people has never been particular kind. There's not a lot of standout good characters. And Disney, this cultural moment, none of that really bodes well for a religious figure. But here they were, going to kind of anchor this whole thing around this, this Mandalorian. And what they were introducing fans to is this idea of this character who is, who is a religious zealot. He is passionate about his cause, passionate about his people. And these people that he gathers around, they are a religious order with a particular way of life. They've got rules and, and structures and, and sayings. And, and there's a, his whole life is built around this religious order that he is part of. One of those rules is which he never takes his masks off, mask off around anybody. You know, only take your mask off in secret. And he would say, if I ever take my mask off, mask off in front of somebody, I can never put it on again. That's the rule. That's his religious rule. And he's, he's, he's zealous about it. And there's all these times where he's fighting to keep that mask on. Till all of a sudden there's this big dramatic moment. He's got this character. He's trying to save his life. And he goes through all this stuff. And he's doing all the great things that he does. And his whole team is there with him. And they're going to re- save the day until they hit this this lock, this door that needs to be opened and it turns out the only way it can be opened is with a facial scan. You got to scan his face and he's the only one that can do it. So there's this big moment. What do you do? You never take your mask off. If you take the mask off, you never get to put it back on. And of course, sure enough, what he does is he takes his mask off. He shows his face, unlocks the door, saves the day. So all of a sudden, this, this journey is of this, this passionate religious figure 
who's having his practices questioned, these hard rules that he has for his life are clashing with the basic ordinary needs of the people around him and the people that he cares for. These bright line rules of religious people can get tested in the real world. And when you have that moment where these bright line rules that we have as, as religious people, when they're getting tested, you've got to ask really two questions. And the second one is more important than the first. The first question you ask is, well, are my rules correct? That's what he had to wrestle, wrestle with, this whole mask rule. Does it really make sense when he's sitting there with that face scan and he's got to save this person? Is it, are the rules correct? What are the right rules? But then the most important question is, who gets to decide? Who makes that decision? And it's those two questions that hover over this early part of chapter 6 in the Sabbath controversies. You see the stories that we read. I'm, I'm bringing three stories together. The first two are about the Sabbath. And, and we've already had a little bit of controversy in the Sabbath. We've already come to understand that, that when Jesus is doing his ministry, he's, he's got a different view of the Sabbath and the way that the Sabbath, is what it's meant to be, and it's already brought him into conflict. But now what's happening here in the early part of chapter 6 is you are seeing the opposition to Jesus crystallized. We got to get introduced to the Pharisees last week, and now we're seeing them emerge as his as his stiffest competition, as his real antagonist. And, and where it comes to a head is over the practice of the Sabbath. So when you open up in verse 1 and you see this story unfold, you begin by seeing that the practices of the Sabbath were just intensely scrutinized. Now, that is not necessarily readily apparent to you if you were just reading the Old Testament and saying, let's just understand what this whole thing is all about. Um, there is a time, at, at the time here in the first century, there was a, there was a saying that one rabbi recorded. He, he, he talked about the rules of the Sabbath. He said this, he said, the rules about the Sabbath are as mountains hanging by a hair, for scripture is scanty and the rules are many. Well, that was the problem. What, what was the issue is you, you had in, in the Sabbath, you're really dealing with actually one of the two positive commands of the, of the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments had, had eight prohibitions. Here's what you're not supposed to do. But they, it, it said two things God told them. Here are two positive things you can do. You can honor your father and mother, and you can remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Now, that positive command to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy was a, a, a command that was meant to bless the people. It was a lot of things that it was doing. It was meant to bless them. It was meant to give restoration. It was meant to reinforce their relationship with God. Here they have one day a week where they cease from work in order to honor God, to remember, to celebrate, to worship, to really allow themselves to step away from the grind and the burden. Even as God led, leads his people into the desert, he provides manna for them, food every day. And, and the manna would, if they tried to store it, it would just rot. Except on that day six, where God would provide a double portion. And he would give them enough so that they could have a day of rest to cease from gathering the manna. The manna would not come on that Sabbath. 
this beautiful picture of the Old Testament view of the Sabbath as, as a place of blessing and restoration and, and, and just building up. And, and just, it's a beautiful, beautiful image. But it, by the time of the first century, it had become a burden. Uh, the Pharisees had, had risen up and, and created what they called the, the, the rule was 40 save 1. That is, they had 39 prohibited tasks. They wanted to understand. They wanted to create some bright line rules around the Sabbath. Here's what you can do. Here's what you can't do. And they had 39 things that were prohibited. And everyone was expected to know those 40 save 1, those 39 rules of what they can't do. And so then we find ourselves here where the disciples are walking through a grain field and they're plucking and eating the grain. Now, this is not, in their time, not something that would be stealing. We might look at that and say, are they stealing this grain? Are they not supposed to do this? Is this like going to set them off with the farmer? No, there, there's a whole pi- uh, principle in the Old Testament of gleaning the fields and the idea that you're, you're allowing to provide. You're providing for hungry people. Even as a farmer, you're going to set aside some portion of your field to allow people to glean crops. And the idea of, of plucking some grain to feed yourself, feed a hungry person, is something that was acceptable. You're kind of sharing out of the abundance with those in particular need and allowing them to do some work to collect what they need. The trick is, this is not readily apparent uh, in the Old Testament that this would be a violation of Sabbath at all. Um, And in fact, um, if we're going to lawyer up about it, the definition is, the trick is they've got to get, they got to debate whether this would be an issue of plucking, which is the word here in your, in that translation I just read. Is it plucking or is it harvesting? Is it plucking? If it's plucking, then that would be okay. If it's harvesting... By the time of the first century, the rules that had built up around the Sabbath, would be, it would be considered work. And it would be done so because of the rise of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees can often be a straw man when you're reading through Luke, reading through the Gospels as New Testament Christians. We often like to pick on them. And they don't look very good in the Gospels. But I think it's worth saying that if there's any religious group in first century Judaism that most of us would have identified the most with, it would be the Pharisees. You really had four major groups at the time. You had the Essenes. The Essenes were like ascetics, like they wanted to retreat from the world. They went off, you know, there was the most famous Essenes would be the ascetic community around the Dead Sea that that gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls. These are people that retreat from life, that want to withdraw, they're going to fast, they're going to practice this kind of rigorous discipline, but they're pulling away from the culture around them. Most folks would be probably dissatisfied with the picture of the Essenes as a way to live as a serious follower of God today. Um, There are also the Zealots. Now, maybe the Zealots would actually get a better uh, view now, but typically throughout most of us, uh, most of us would be kind of turned off by the Zealots because the Zealots were the political revolutionaries. Um, You've got the Zealots who are trying to overthrow Rome. Like their job is they're wanting to build an army and they want to see, you know, good Jewish soldiers rise up and take the world back. And they're going to do it at the point of a sword. Again, these days, some people might be drawn to that or intrigued by that. But I think most of us would probably say that doesn't seem to be what good followers of God are really meant to be about. We're not old crusaders here. So the Essenes, you have the Zealots, and then you have the Sadducees. And, And the Sadducees are the politically compromised. They really were the ones that say, you know, we're going to make our peace with Rome by as much as possible, we're going to be Roman. 
and they would allow themselves to kind of adopt Roman world. And they were seen really as those who had kind of fallen away, who had given up. They're the liberals of their day because they had surrendered so much to the Roman culture around them in order to succeed, in order to gain power. It was so important to them to be in the halls of power. They were willing to say whatever needed to be said. So when you look at them that way, the Essenes, the Zealots, the Sadducees, and then you've got the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are, are this group that's saying we are passionate about keeping the law. We want to take the Old Testament seriously. And so they are going to establish a whole lot of rules. They're going to be helping people. We're going to understand the law. We're going to interpret the law. We're going to see all this stuff for you. And what they would say is they're going to build a hedge around the law. If you follow us, you will be law-abiding people. You will be faithful to the Torah because you will be earnest in your pursuit of our obedience. And you know because of the hedge we've built, you're never going to get close to the fence. You're not going to touch it. I think, really, we start with the understanding probably most of us would have identified a lot with that purpose. And I think you have to have that, a little bit of that sympathy for them in order to understand just how much they went wrong. Why is it that Jesus keeps coming at them here um, the key that the Pharisees had in these 39 uh, rules of here's the 39 things of work, and here's, here's the way we're going to keep the Sabbath. Here's all the things you can do. Here's how far you can walk on this day, and here's the s- number of steps you can take. Here's the food you can eat. Here's how you can prepare it. Well, the issue was that the Old Testament, what, what God gave them in the Sabbath was, in legal parlance, it's, it's a standard. Here's the thing you're supposed to do. You're supposed to honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. Well, what does that mean? Well, the Pharisees took that standard and they gave you a rule. They gave you lots of rules, actually. Each of them has a place. You've got different areas in law where we have rules and we have standards. You've got a standard is, you know, you've got to be reasonable. Happens a lot in civil law. You sue somebody for negligence. And what's the standard of conduct in this behavior is you've got to have a certain amount of duty of care. and You've got to act a certain way. Montana tried it years ago. They had decided to get rid of their speed limits, and so they had a speed limit. You've got to drive like reasonable and safe. Well, then people were driving like demons, and they say, well, this doesn't work, because then you're at every single case. Somebody's driving 20, and some drive, someone's driving 120. Every person's got an argument to make, see, this is why what I was doing was reasonable, given the conditions I was in, given the road I was on, given that it's Montana, and you can see 300 miles in front of you at any given time. It's fine. And they're having to debate that, and they finally say, no, this isn't working. Let's go back to the rule, 55, 65, 75, whatever it is, those bright line rules. And if you're driving one mile over, you're caught, you're done. The problem with with standards is the lack of clarity. The problem with rules is the rules don't always accomplish what you want to do. So the disciples' action here violated the tradition, the rules that the Pharisees had built up. Though it's not clear, in fact, I would argue it's actually clear that they were not actually violating the law. One of the big questions about Jesus is he actually encouraging people to be violating Torah here. No, not at all. And actually, that's what Jesus responds to when they're, they're, they're plucking the grain, they're eating it, it's doing it on the Sabbath, and they say, hey, this is not lawful. This is not lawful because, verse 2, because of the tradition that we have, the rules that we have created to build this hedge around the law. So how does he respond? Well, he two things. First, he gives them an example. He says, well, look at the Old Testament. Look at God's word. 1 Samuel 21 is what he reads, for, is, is telling them the story 
of, of David in this moment where they're starving and they're hungry, and here they are eating all that's available to them, which is this priestly bread. Here they are eating priestly bread because that's, it was out of necessity. That's what they had. Um, and, and there, there's no sense in the text where that's disapproved or David is defying God or thumbing his nose at, at proper order when he does this. So what it's looking at is that, well, look at the law. Look, I mean, look at the word of God itself. Look at that moment. Was David wrong in, in doing this? And what Jesus is, I think, implying here as he analyzes is that you see in that moment that the strict law of Sabbath moved aside for the sake of human need. That there was this moment where they had to exercise judgment and understand the, the moment we're in, what's actually going on, we need somebody to have some common sense and say, we're not going to let these people starve because of this particular good order. There was a book a few years ago written called Three Felonies a Day, and what it was writing about was kind of thinking about some of the brokenness, one of the many things broken in our modern criminal justice system is that we've over-criminalized a lot of things, especially at the federal level, and they were saying every person is uh, committing, on average, three felonies every day. You go to work, you do your job, you drive home. By the end of the day, you've committed three felonies. Congratulations. Um, and they were talking about what that requires is, you know, there, there's a problem there you need to fix at the law. You need to write better laws so you're not making criminals of every single person in the world. Uh, but it also requires a lot of judgment at the enforcement level. You've got to have people that can look with common sense and say, what are we really trying to punish here? What are we really about? Well, Jesus is doing a little bit of that here. He's like, look, David was in this moment of crisis. He needed to eat. Um, and the priest let him eat, and that was not a big deal. Something in your rules, you've missed something about the way Sabbath was meant to be. That's the first piece, and that's an important reinterpretation. That's that question of, are your rules correct? And what Jesus is saying is, yeah, you, you, your rules you've built up, they're wrong. But then the second thing he said, I, again, I think it's more important. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of, Lord of the Sabbath. Which is that Jesus asserts that he is the one with authority to interpret the law. And, and he is the one that is, has the final authority to point back to, this is the law. This is what God is up to. This is the purpose of the law. And this is how it will be fulfilled today. It's a much bolder assertion. Jesus could have argued with them in that first thing to say, well, look at this scripture, look at this scripture. And if he were arguing like a Pharisee, what he would do then is he would start quoting authority. See, look, Rabbi whatever said this centuries ago. And he'd quote all of these people in this line of authority that would back up his reading to say, see, I'm actually in stronger, uh, stronger in understanding the tradition and interpreting the law. But that's not what he says. He said, that's the word of God. And I'm the one that interprets it. You've got to listen to me. The real question is not whether they like their reading of the law versus Jesus' reading of the law. Do they think they have a better interpretation than he does? The ultimate question is, are they willing to submit to him as the Lord of the Sabbath, as the one with authority appointed by God to be God's agent in the world? It's a much, say, it's a much bigger question, a much deeper question. But he has this authority 
he's actually pointing them back to here's the way scripture is meant to be interpreted here's how the law should be rightly read he is the one that's interpreting it better he's the one that's pointing them to its true meaning well second thing happens similar thing happens start in verse six now you go to another sabbath you notice you get no response luke is kind of setting us up to kind of start asking how are you going to respond to this how are they going to respond to this you get a hint immediately because on this other Sabbath, he's in the sa- his synagogue now. He's teaching, and then you've got the scribes and the Pharisees are watching him. Notice verse 7, they're wanting to see whether he's going to heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him, which is, a, I think, a stunning revelation of the condition of their hearts. Here they are in a place where they expect Jesus can heal, and as good followers of the law readers of the law they should expect if this guy can heal that should be confirmation that he is who he says he is which is god's son (laughs) he is the son of man he is the one with authority he's appointed by god they should be seeing if if he's a healer then we should be listening to him following him listening to what the prophet has to say that should be a testimony a divine testimony but instead they're wanting to see if he can heal so that they can catch him, so they can accuse him for violating the Sabbath. So, what's the problem here? Well, healing is allowed on the Sabbath. But the general rule is it really comes down to necessity. Necessity is the key to your practice on the Sabbath. The general rule is you can heal if the life is in danger. Otherwise, if, if it's not a critical need, if it's, you've done your triage and you establish this person could actually live to Sunday, if they can make it to Sunday, then wait and do your healing at midnight or at sundown. Just wait. Then, so there were some things, things practicing, like midwifery was allowed. You can, you can, you know, if you're going to bring the child in, they're not going to force you to keep the child in until Sunday. They're not going to do that. They're going to let you have the child. Um, they can be critical medicine. And in fact, because they would let the children be born on Saturday, they also allowed circumcision because you had to be circumcised a certain number of days, and if it, that falls on the Sabbath, they're going to allow that. So that's necessity for if your life is in danger and necessity because of a strict compliance with the law. You can see c- the kind of logic here. For this, here's a guy with a withered hand. don't know what, really what that is. It could be simply paralyzed, withered up, whatever it is. It's been obviously a long-time problem. It'll still be a problem tomorrow. He's not going to die. Just wait. So they're looking to trap him or accuse him, but notice what they're doing is they're asking a different kind of question. The question frames how they see the law, how they see the purpose of Sabbath, how they see the relationship with God. The question they ask is, can't this wait until tomorrow? They don't articulate it that way, but if you look at Jesus' response, that's pretty clear what they're asking. Why can't this wait till tomorrow? We've got rules. Rules exist for a reason. So why can't we do that? Let's wait, hold off, do it tonight, and everything is fine. But that's not what he's asking. Verse 9, he calls them up. He knows their thoughts. Notice verse 8. Here he is. He knows what they're thinking. And so he said, he calls this man up to this public place. Stand there. And he asks him not why this can't wait till tomorrow. He says instead, verse 9, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? What Jesus asked him is, well, why should I delay healing 
when good can be done now. The Sabbath is about restoration. The Sabbath is about bringing life and abundance. God gave us this Sabbath in order to restore us. And here, God's agent is standing before the man with the, the deepest challenge of his life. This is the struggle. Like, this hand is the thing that limits him. It keeps him from doing all that he needs to do. And so he is going to restore him, put him back in a place of restoration. That's exactly what Sabbath is supposed to be. God is all about giving us the Sabbath to bless and restore And Jesus is bringing that blessing and restoration to the neediest among them. Jesus is reframing the question that they should be asking. And then he follows that with really two realities. Notice, uh, first reality is the successful healing. Um, And I think it's significant that the way the healing is framed, verse 10, he says, and he did so, he says, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored. It's passive voice. I think that's a lot of times, anytime we see the passive, ask whether is that a divine passive in Scripture? Is that a picture of what God is doing? God is healing his hand. The, The mere fact that the healing was successful is itself at least suggestive of a divine vote of approval. Jesus is interpreting the Sabbath. He successfully heals, which says God agrees with him. So that's the first reality that should be confronting the Pharisees in that moment. The second reality is what his work actually was. What did he do? He said, he looked at them, and he said, stretch out your hand. He didn't do anything. He spoke a sentence. You're allowed to speak on the Sabbath. It was not a command to silence. Even all the rules they had, the 39 things, none of that involves speaking. He didn't even violate their rules about the Sabbath. His work was to speak a sentence, which itself should be remarkable testimony that maybe we ought to listen to this guy. There's something going on here, and he's got something that we don't have. But He's not even violating, he's certainly not violating the Old Testament picture of what Sabbath is. And in fact, you see him fulfilling its essential purpose, which is to restore and build up, to bring life and life abundance through rest. This man can now rest from the burden that he has been carrying for who knows how many years, maybe his whole life. I mean, it's his right hand is withered. And I'm a Southpaw, but in their world, they saw the right hand as the strong hand. That's the hand that gives life and abundance. That's supposed to be his image of strength. Here he is weakened for however many years, incapable of working, limited in his working. Who knows all of the suffering? And here he is now restored with a future, with a hope. And what do they respond to that? That God approves of this teacher of the law that is fulfilling Sabbath in its purest sense. They respond with fury verse 11 it's blind rage because their zeal for the law had blinded them to the purpose of the law their zeal and their passion for the law had blinded them to the work of god that they were that they were trying to honor and building up all these rules and the restoring work of his agent right in front of them passed right by 
they saw God at work in front of them, and they hated that work. That should give us all pause, because it is possible to be zealous about the Word of God and to miss the work of God. Um, They saw good, and they called it evil. And when that happens, now they're they're the opposition. These these religious leaders with their passion for the law, their knowledge of the law, so much of which should be people that we should be respecting and understanding and relating to and admiring. But instead, something has happened where they have become blinded to the work of God before them. And now they are filled with fury, seeking to destroy him. And then it is no uh, coincidence that the next thing that Luke wants us to think about is Jesus calling the apostles. That may at first blush seem a kind of a strange moment. Why is it now that he talks about the, the apostles? And I think there's reasons for this text. There's reasons for what comes next. I think this is a, a bridge text. But you notice the very next thing that happens is that Jesus goes out and he prays. He's praying all night. He's praying to God. Um, so the apostles here are raised up in the midst of this Pharisee conflict. Um, that he's going out to a mountain to pray makes us think of Mount Sinai. You think of the going to the mountain, the idea of, of, of Jesus seeking divine guidance. God is raising up a new type of leadership, even as this heavy-handed Jewish leadership is turning against Jesus. God is raising up a new generation of leadership. The fact that he's raising up 12, verse 13, is significant. These are divinely appointed apostles. The 12 connects us to Israel. We're thinking of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. It's continuity, a relationship with what God has been doing before. Now here, in the moment, Israel's leadership is turning against Jesus. God here is raising up new leadership. And he names them apostles or sent ones. Now that will refer at times in both Luke and generally uh, in the New Testament to a kind of a general commission. Apostles can be those sent by God. They're sent out to do a, a mission. There'll be a lot of different apostles, a much broader group than these 12, but it eventually becomes associated. I think what was happening here is Luke is kind of telegraphing a lot of years. Eventually, these, these are understood to be the apostles. These specific 12 um, will be an important part of the early church. We'll see that in Acts. Judas falls out. Uh, they'll replace him. They want to have that 12 as a picture of, of, of the church's leadership vitally connected with what God has always been doing with his people in the Old Testament and through Israel. The key, as you list all these names, is both their complete ordinariness and their diversity. Uh, he's got a lot of fishermen. He's got a lot of Galileans, perhaps 11 Galileans, which are kind of the backwater folks. And so this is, you know, like he's raising up the apostles, and who does he call? It's a whole bunch of people from West Virginia or Arkansas. I'm seeing if Bruce Johnson or Edna is watching right now. So, um, you know, you just kind of pull up these backwater folks, and he calls these folks as his apostles. But it's also he's got diversity. You've got one government employee because you've got a tax collector. You've got a revolutionary because you've got a zealot. Now, how in the world are those two eating dinner together? You've got the one who worked for the man and the one who wants to bring the man down. 
Um, and then you've got Judas, this uh, Judas Iscariot. And there's a lot of debate about what that word means, but it likely just it means it's referring to a region in Judea, which means he's the one outsider. He's the one non-Galilean in the crowd. But, but notice, they are divinely appointed, including Judas, which itself is significant. Um, Jesus is seeking God's guidance and prayer to raise up these 12, and God raises up those 12, including this traitor. God's purposes include raising him up. Judas is going to be a key part of the story, but it is not a part of the story where God's purposes are failing but where God's purposes are being fulfilled. And that's going to be a vital piece to understand as Luke tells us the story of Jesus' work with these 12 apostles. They don't get a whole lot of attention, frankly, in Luke. A lot of their work, and as you see in the chapters ahead, pretty much their work right now is to listen and to follow and to learn. In Acts, they're going to take a much more central role central as they take center stage. But for now, he calls these 12 really as an alternative to that Jewish leadership that is turning so hard against him. To see he's raising up a new, uh, new line of followers who are not marked by being particularly well-educated or p- having particularly great pedigrees or anything else, but they are marked by people who are called to listen and learn and be willing to follow Jesus wherever he goes. So what do you do with all that? Let me offer two keys to you. First, that, that Jesus is the authoritative interpreter of the purposes of God. The, the question of the Sabbath and Sabbath interpretation is simply less important than the question of authority. The right answer, getting the right answer, isn't as important as who decides that right answer. And that's true in a lot of things, of the law, and the world, and our lives. We've got to ask who is the right authority who are we going to who are we looking to for the answers um and what what this text is asserting for us what luke is telling us is the one with the authority is jesus and so whatever questions we've got the 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 thing that we need to do is to look to him to have him guide us to the answer and if we're looking to him we're on the right track if we're going to look elsewhere we're going to get off track because if he is the authoritative, authoritative interpreter of God's purpose, and the second key is that Jesus is forcing us to decide who we make our authority. He holds himself out as the authority, and the authority of the day turns its back. They, in fact, hate him for trying to assert that. In our day, I would say the, the answer that we are kind of swimming in in our culture who is the authority in our lives? Who is our final authority? The thing that we're told every single day is that we are. That we are our own authority. The individual in our culture is, is held up and celebrated as the ultimate authority. And a lot of our institutions are trying to get out of the way and say, whatever you decide about who you are, whatever you decide about yourself, we're supposed to simply affirm that except for all the times that we don't like what your answer is, and then we'll come down hard on you. But you, the culture's general answer is you are, and Jesus' answer is that he is the authority. So I think, in a sense, we can be like the Pharisees, not simply in being zealous for the law that can blind us, but you can also be zealous for our own individual autonomy. 
we can be so passionate about being authority unto ourselves, it can blind us to the purposes of God that are revealed in Christ. Our zeal for so many things, in here we can be like the Pharisees, our zeal for the law, but our zeal for our own feelings, our own emotions, our own sense of this is what's right, this is what's wrong, our own zeal for so many things can blind us to God's work in Christ. And the answer to all of those things is what he's offering here is that we, had, we need a Christ-filled vision in order to see the world correctly. If all we're doing is going out in the world and saying, all I'm going to do is to find truth, I'm going to look inside for my own answers. I'm going to look to see how I feel, what's inside me, where my emotions might lead, what my own internal sense of right and wrong, we're going to be led astray. It's not going to guide us anywhere. But if we look to Christ, if we fill our vision with who Jesus is and what he's about and how he's wanting to lead and how he loves people and cares for people, if we keep on anchoring with him as our sight, then we can see the world correctly and we can go where we need to go. This Mandalorian, in his struggle as this religious zealot, was often blinded by these rules until he saw actual need. And when he saw that need, it caused him to question, what am I doing here and what is this all about? What Jesus is doing in Luke 6 is is filling our vision and offering himself as the authority. He's guiding us. He says, if you'll look to me, I'll guide you into the right interpretation. You'll understand what you need to follow the law. You'll understand what you need if you'll just look to me. And the question we have where the, the Pharisees failed and the apostles offer us another hope is that we might be those who are submitting to Christ as our authority, knowing that he will lead us well. Let's pray. God, I pray for the humility to submit to Christ's way, to follow him, to fill our vision with who he is and what he's about, to let him help us understand his word, understand scripture, to understand the path that we need to follow in these days. In Christ's name, amen. We can help you in any way. Please come while we stand and sing. The splendor.